0: So you can open up to Genesis 1, making it easy on you guys this evening. Uh, You don't have to turn very far. Right in the beginning, Genesis 1, and you're going to be looking at a couple of verses only. We're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to read through verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 28. So why don't we, uh, we're going to read that, and then we'll pray together, and then we will get started And uh, jump right in. Let me just give you guys a second. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And the text reads, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them then god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth let's pray together heavenly father we thank you for your word and lord we thank you that As we gather tonight, Lord, and as we worship you in song, and now as we seek to worship you with our minds and our hearts, Lord, God, I pray that you please give us ears to hear, God. Father, that we might receive uh, the implanted word which can give us the salvation of our souls, Lord. So, Father, I pray that you would bless this time. We thank you, and we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said, Amen. 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 Uh, As Josh mentioned earlier, we've been doing a new series that we started last week entitled Truth and Apply. And the purpose of this series is that each week, we're going to, or every two weeks, the first week we take an apologetic type topic, and the second week we look to apply it in the scriptures. So for example, last week we looked at arguments for the existence of God, right? So we looked at the Kalam cosmological arguments, right? And, um... I can't remember the other one. What's the other one? What is it? Teleological argument? Was that it? What? Yes. All right. Teleological argument. I apologize. See how much I know, right? Uh, But this week, we're going to be looking to apply that by asking the question if God is indeed the divine designer of creation, what were we designed for? What is our purpose? our meaning in life as human beings? And this is obviously a very deep question, right? A lot of people have sought to answer this, philosophers, authors, songwriters, scientists, right? And uh, so I'm not gonna um, act like I know everything, but I believe that uh, the word of God has something to say about what we were designed and what we were created to do. And I think it's a fundamental question that all of us ask usually at some point in our life, what purpose do I have? Why do I exist, right? And so uh, I just want to clear the air to make sure you guys, we're not going to be talking about specific calling tonight, right? So this isn't going to be a message on the will of God for your life specifically. It's not going to be a message on calling per se, but rather it's going to be looking at this understanding of if God, when God created us, what did he have in mind? What was he thinking when he made us and what was his purpose for us? And so as we begin to unfold this tonight and seek to answer this question, we're going to be looking at three things in particular. We're going to be looking at our purpose, our problem, and our solution. So our purpose, what we were created for, our problem, what went wrong, and our solution. So why don't we start off by looking at our purpose. And as we look right here at these verses that we've read, the first thing we'll notice, we're going to notice two things that are linked to this idea of our purpose. And the first thing is who created us. And the second thing to understand is how and what were we created for? So let's begin by looking at this question of who created us? Because if if you understand the starting point of where we came from, that has a lot of big implications for what you believe your purpose in life is. And so as we see here in the Bible, the Bible makes this very um, strong claim. In verse 27, it says, so God created us so the Bible opens up with the words, in the beginning, right God, right, God created, right? And so here we have this implication that God has created us. And so immediately this has big implications for how we understand our meaning and our purpose in life. Because if it's God who created us, then that means every single person in this room has an objective meaning to their life that exists outside of how they may feel, right? So when God created, He created creation and He put into the fabric of creation meaning and purpose. And so when we're thinking about meaning, if you have the starting point of God, that means that meaning in life is discoverable. It's something that can be discovered. It's something that can be known. So a perfect illustration of this is think about it like this. Let's imagine that you walk into guitar center, right? right? You guys are a bit of guitar center, right? They' got instruments everywhere, right? And let's say that you see a guy who has a guitar, and to the head of the guitar, he is strapped a mop, and he is just mopping the floors, right? Now, immediately, you would be very confused, right? You would ask yourself, what is this guy doing, right? Because you know that the person who created that guitar had a very specific purpose in mind when they created it. You knew that the person who created that guitar made a guitar to make music, not to clean floors. And you knew that it makes music through the strumming of the strings. And so when you see somebody who's mopping floors with it, you understand that something is wrong, right? That guitar is not fulfilling its meaning in life, right? Quote, unquote. And so likewise, if it's true that God created us, then that means there is objective meaning to your life. And that means also that you can be using your life inappropriately. And when I mean inappropriately, I mean that you could be using your life in a way that it wasn't designed for, right? Like the guy mopping the floor with a guitar. He's not using the guitar in the way that it was, right? So the first thing to notice about this idea that God created us is to recognize that there is objective purpose, and that will determine help us even determine, am I misusing my life? But the question is, what if you don't believe in God, right? What about for the person who says, I don't believe in the beginning God created, I believe in the beginning time plus chance plus matter, boom, here we are, right? What does that mean for me? How does that person deal with meaning in life? Does that mean that their life is meaningless? Well, yes and no, right? So it's not meaningless because even if you don't believe in God, right, you can have a purpose and you can have assurance that what you're doing is, is for the greater good, right? So let's say that you say, I'm going to live my life around being a good student. Or you decide, I'm going to be a, a good, I'm going to help the poor. Or when one day when I'm, in, when I'm married, I'm going to make sure that I love and serve my spouse, right? Then you have, by definition, you have meaning in your life. But the problem with this is that, unlike discovered meaning, right, the meaning that comes from the fact that God created us and he had a purpose in his creating of us, for the person who doesn't believe in God as a starting point for creation, they in turn have to be the creators of their own meaning, right? So there's these two ideas behind purpose and meaning. Either meaning is discovered, given to us by God, or we have to create our own meaning. Now, maybe for some of you, say may say, like, well, that sounds great, right? Like, I love to create my own meaning. I love to do... Whatever I want, but there's a couple of issues involved with this. The first thing is that if you have to create your own meaning, then that means it's subjective. And what that means is that it's based on just how you feel, it's based on your circumstances. So the meaning that you create for yourself isn't based on the created order, but rather it's what you've imposed. It's what you've decided this is what I'm going to do. But the problem with this is that it's very fragile and thin. So, for example, Let's say that you decide my meaning in life is to be a good student. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to aim for a 4.0 GPA. I could even settle for a 3.8. I could live, right? And I'm going to really apply myself. I'm going to seek to get into Ivy League schools. And then once I'm there, I'm going to seek to graduate magna cum laude, right? Top of the class, get a good job. I want to be a good student and really dedicate myself to studies, to my studies, right? But what happens when you send out all your applications, right? Stanford says no, Harvard says no, Princeton says no, and all of a sudden you have to go to community college, right? What's happened? Your meaning in life is starting to crumble, right? It's fragile because you've said, I'm gonna create my own meaning, but when trials come or suffering comes, your meaning begins to crumble. Right? Or let's say, for example, you decide that, well, I want to live a life where I make enough money where, you know, I'll give money to the poor, but I also just want to be comfortable, right? I never want to have to worry about my money and where it's going to come from. Well the reality is, is that that's never really stable, right? People get laid off all the time, right? You're always hearing about the unemployment rate, stock market crashes, and all of a sudden all your assets gone like that, right? Or forget getting fired, what if you don't even get hired, right, and all of a sudden all your dreams have just been crushed and so when you have a meaning in life that is is based on how you feel and it's based on what you infuse into your understanding of the world it's oftentimes susceptible to suffering and so as Christians when we understand our meaning in life we look at it and we understand that it's wrapped up in God We understand that for us, our purpose in life, our meaning in life, is objective and it involves getting to know, become like, please, and ultimately be with God. And so when suffering enters into our circumstances, oftentimes, it can actually enhance our meaning. It can actually create character, right, and draw us closer to the purpose that we were made for. And so as Christians, we understand that our meaning exists beyond the material. And when you have meaning that exists beyond the material, when you have meaning that is created and is by God and is discoverable, rather than created, it creates this secure foundation for it. So, in the first place, when we think about who made us, we understand, as Christians, that God is our starting point. And if it is He who created us, then we have a meaning in life that's durable, right? It can withstand suffering because it transcends suffering. It goes above and beyond the material world. It goes above and beyond our circumstances. But the second thing that we have to understand that's linked to this, right? So understanding for our purpose in life is understanding as well how and why, I'm sorry, how and what we were created for. How and what we were created for. So verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And so the fact that God created us in the first place, it means that we have embedded purpose, objective purpose to our lives. But when we start to understand the idea that we've been made in the image of God, then we start to understand what that purpose is, right? So the fact that God created us means that there is purpose, but the fact that we're made in the image of God starts to show us what the purpose actually is, the substance of The purpose of our lives. And before we go on to look at that, I think it's very important to point out that this idea of God making us in his image is a very unique concept. So God does not speak this way about any other thing that he created. He did not tell the animals that they were made in his image. He did not tell, you know, anything else. But even the angels weren't created in his image. But we, humans, were made in the image of God and so what that means is that right from the start you and i have a unique and special dignity before the eyes of god and in a world where a lot of people are always labeling a lot of different things that rear their ugly heads things like racism and prejudice right or people uh, looking down on those who have disabilities all these different things the bible starts with the starting point and says, you are made in the image of God, and therefore you are unique and you are valuable, regardless of what society may say. And this has profound implications for the way that we understand social justice, the way that we understand our rights, right? Human rights, where did that come from, right? If you, if you believe that, that God did not create the world, then human rights is a pointless concept. Right? Because how did we come to be? Through the survival of the fittest. Nature is red in tooth and claw. Right? As one philosopher says, we descended from apes, therefore love one another. Right? He's joking, because it doesn't make sense. right? It only makes sense if you're made in the image of God. And when you're made in the image of God, it has profound implications for how we love and serve one another. So already we see there's this glimmer of hope for purposefulness. right? because you have a starting point that you're made in God's image and so immediately you've been infused with unique and special dignity. But as we're gonna see here, being made in the image of God also shows us how we are to live and the purpose for which we are to made. And that purpose is twofold. Being made in the image of God means that we were made for relationship and we were made for reflection. We were made for relationship and we were made for reflection. So let's look at those two things in turn. The first thing is the concept that we were made for relationship. If you notice in verse 26, it says, God speaking, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So it uses, God doesn't say, let me make man according to my image, but he says, according to our image, right? In our likeness and what this is pointing out is that God is inherently relational so as Christians we believe in the Trinity one God three persons and what that means is that from eternity God existed in relationship and when God created he didn't create out of power but he created out of love because he didn't need anything he had perfect relationship between God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit And so there's this relationship and out of that comes us and so we see right here in Genesis 20 in 126 that God is inherently relational and so if we are images of God that means that we too are inherently relational beings and you see this reiterated look in verse 27 it says God created man in his own image right and it says male and female he created him God created two to be in relationship, right? To, com- to, con- to complement one another, right? Each equal in value, equal in dignity, given different roles, that by those different roles they may glorify God in their respective ways. But it shows here that we are made for relationship. We were created to be in relationship with God and relationship with other people. And now we understand that this, is, this isn't just something that's abstract, right? It's not just some big theological principle. But rather, it's very um, practical. So, if you look in two, in chapter two, in verse nineteen, in verse, um, I'm sorry, yeah, in verse nineteen, it says, "Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them." What that's saying is that God brought the animals to Adam, and he said, "All right, what are you going to name them?" And it was an activity that they took part in together. God was relational. He didn't just set the world in motion and turn around, but he was a personal God, right? And we see that as well in in chapter 3. It says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God walked with Adam and Eve. And so as we understand these things, we see that at the core of this relationship, the substance of this relationship is blessing. Blessing. Look at verse 28. What does it say? Then God blessed them. God blessed them. So the first thing God does is is he creates human beings, he creates them in his image, and he blesses them. And the question is, what is the greatest blessing that God can give? What did that mean when God said he blessed them? Well, the thing that God gave them is himself. Because you have to think about this. If God is the greatest good, the only thing that he can give, if he wants to give somebody the greatest good, the only thing he can give is himself. God has nothing better to give than himself. And that's what he does here. He blesses Adam and Eve and he says, "I, you will be my people and I will be your God. Right? That is the that is promise that runs through the whole Bible. This reverberates through every single page, every single, every single stage of history. I will be your God, you will be my people. It is the greatest and most profound blessing, and it's the thing that we as Christians hold to. That God is our God. And so here in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have perfect relationship. All contentment, satisfaction, joy, peace, all of that is given to them through relationship with God. And so what God does is he blesses them, he gives them himself, and what this was to cause them to do was for them to then bless others. If you remember, when God is talking to the children of Israel, the Bible reminds us why. He blessed them. Why? So that they could be a blessing. Whenever God blesses us, it's never an end unto itself, but it's rather an opportunity to go and bless other people. God doesn't just bless us so that we can just Oh, great, now God has blessed me. No, he's done it so that you can turn around and say, Lord, how do you now want me to go and be a blessing to other people? And that's exactly what God does here. He blesses Adam and Eve, and they are supposed to go out and then be a blessing to one another in their relationships with with one another as they were fruitful and multiply to bless the world in relationship. So the first thing we see is that you and I were made for relationship. We're relational beings and the most deep, satisfying relationship that you and I can ever experience is a relationship with God. And that is what God shows us, what the Bible shows us right here in the beginning. But the second implication of being made in the image of God for understanding our purpose is related to this idea of reflection, this idea of reflecting God. So when, when the Bible talks about, when it uses that word, made in the image of God, it means that we are going to be representatives that we are to reflect his image. So the idea is kind of like a statue or a mirror. So how many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Good, a lot of you. So when you go to Washington, D.C., what is there a lot of? Monuments, right? There's monuments everywhere. There's a monument to this, a monument to that, a statue of this guy, a statue of that guy, right? Most of them you have no idea who these people are, right? Sean Kenny would know who they are, but I don't, right? It's an inside joke. If you know Sean Kenny, you appreciate that. So, right, so you go to Washington, D.C., and there's these statues everywhere, right? And what is the purpose of a statue? So, let's take, for example, you go to the Lincoln Memorial, right? The purpose of the Lincoln Memorial is to remind us of the greater reality of President Abraham Lincoln and all that he did for our nation, right? President Lincoln, you remember during the, you know, he signed, um, I'm probably, actually, I'm not even gonna say anything historical because I'm probably wrong. And Sean will find out, and he will rebuke me in love. So Abraham Lincoln, I know he was a president. I know he was known as the Honest Abe, right? During the Civil War and uh, Emancipation Proclamation, right? All right, come on, I know something. So right. So anyways, yeah, thank you, thank you. I digress. Anyways, the purpose of the of Abra- uh, the purpose of the uh, Lincoln Monument is to give an image, a representation of Abraham Lincoln, so that all who look at that statue are reminded of the greater reality of that president and what he accomplished as a president. And so when you see statue, when you see images, they're intended to remind you of a greater reality. And so the first thing as we understand this idea of being made in the image of God, it's almost as if God, right? You know, you say, what would you think of a person if they put 7 billion statues of themselves all over the world. You would think that they would want you to know about them, right? And so that's the idea. God has placed humanity on the earth to be little monuments that are to remind the created order of the greater reality of God. Little statues that are meant to image forth our Lord. And so he is the end, right? He is the greater reality. Like, no one looks at the statue of Abraham Lincoln and just appreciates it for a statue. It's supposed to remind you of the man. It's supposed to remind you of the accomplishments of the, of the real, breathing, living individual. And so likewise, our lives are to be statues that remind other people of who God is. And so how do you be a good statue? How do you be a monument for Christ, right? The answer is that you show people how glorious He is and how satisfied you are by Him, right? And so when people look at your life and they see that you are happy because you've placed your happiness in knowing God, people in turn will look and say, who is this God that these people are representing? You're imaging forth. You're being a statue to the glory of God. And as people realize, what is, what is this, this statue's source of joy, their source of peace? And, and then in turn, they look and they're reminded of the greater reality of God. And so you have to ask yourself, what if, if you are bored with God, what kind of monument is that? Right? If you are if you're the type of person who just doesn't really care, and yet you've been stamped with the image of God, what are you telling people about who God is? If you're disinterested in his word and have really no regard for, for his glory, what is that, what kind of image is that putting forth? It's a good question to ask yourself. What image am I representing? Is my life a statue that God would look at and it would be a representation of the greater reality? But the second idea is the idea of a mirror, right? And so what also God is saying is he's saying here, I created you so that you would reflect my glory, right? That you would reflect my glory, my goodness, my love, and my character to all the world like a mirror, right? So the images, imagine a mirror, it's pointed up to the sun at a 45 degree angle. The sun hits it and it spreads out the radiance of that sun, right? And likewise, God is saying, you, being created in my image, are supposed to turn the mirror of your soul towards me. And as you reflect me, you then are able to go out into the world and bring goodness and bring flourishing. And so if we're going to reflect God, we have to ask ourselves, what is God like? And the good news is as we look at Genesis 1, the book of beginnings, right, you start to see the character of God. We see from Genesis one that God was wise, and that in His plans, when he, was, when he was creating, He did it with precision. Everything was done excellently. And so, one way that you can reflect the glory of God is do what you do excellently. That means when you come onto, when you come to work, you do it excellently, even if you're working for minimum age minimum age yeah, that's what I meant minimum wage. You do it excellently. Even if you're in a job situation that's not ideal, you do it excellently. Why? Because you're reflecting the glory of God. You work with precision, right? And people look at that, and they say, man, you know, this guy's working at ShopRite. And that's not a dig on ShopRite, but I'm just saying, you know, most people don't dream of working at ShopRite, so that's why I'm using it as an illustration. You're working at ShopRite, and yet you're stocking those shelves with vigor, right? Like, all those price labels, they are lined up. They are accurate. Everybody knows that you built that pyramid of cans, right? Because it was done excellently, right? Everybody knows that the fish is fresh because there's mad ice in there because you stocked it up, right? So this is just an example, but the idea is that you are working excellently. But we also see that God was creative, right? See, when God made the world, it wasn't like he just made one breed of fish, you know, one breed of tree, right? He, there's this, there's this multiple, multi, multi-dimensional flourishing, and there's creativity, and so when you come to your work, are you creative, right? And that's what's so cool to see in people who are artists, people who are poets, people who are writers, these different things. When even you know somebody, I remember reading um, this article about this guy who he was designing couches. And he brought in a theologian to ask the theologian, what do Christians believe about rest? And he took that principle of rest and he applied it to how he made his couch. Isn't that cool? Right? A couch maker. You wouldn't think that he would be able to apply theology to his his job, and yet he did, because he was seeking to be creative. He was seeking to reflect the image of God in a couch. Right? And so that people would know and they'd sit on this couch and and feel so rested that they would ask themselves, My goodness, this couch is restful. Who made this? And he would be able to say, I believe in the God of the Sabbath, who in six days he created, in the seventh he rested. Right? How cool would that be? And so you infuse creativity into your work, you work with excellence regardless of where you are. You know, this could apply to something like school, right? All of us, ah, school, right? It's hard. You know I just finished my semester and it's challenging and God's saying I want you to work excellent in that because when you do you're actually reflecting me and what that does is it transforms the way that you view the things that you do because all of a sudden things that were once mundane are infused with purpose and meaning because you're reflecting God in doing them and in so doing you're actually glorifying him which is epic right so what else to be see? Well, we also see that what God created was good, right? At the end of everything that God creates, He always says, "And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good." Right? What's the only thing that was not good? That man was alone, and so He gave him a mate, and there you have relationship, right? And so the principle that we could take away from that is is what you are setting your hands to good. Prime example is the internet, right? The internet is one of those things where it's it's neutral, right? It's not inherently bad, it's not inherently good, right? But there's people who use the internet for terrible things, right? They use it, I, my dad was watching the news and there was this thing where you could literally order heroin through the internet and it's like untraceable, right? So people are using the internet to spread death. You think about the pornography industry, billions and billions of dollars, women who are trafficked and treated like trash so that People can feel one sense of, that's wicked. But on the other hand, the internet can be used for wonderful things, right? Think about how many podcasts you have access to, how many sermons you can listen to, how many articles you can read, how you can show people art, you can create videos and get it out to the whole world, how we can do something like a leap in the dark and make a video and let millions of people potentially know about the gospel. You can use it to be To create good. And so you have to ask yourself is what what I'm doing good? Because if what you're doing is not life giving, it's not reflecting the giver of life. Am I using the materials that God has given to create things that are good? Because when He created, He created things that were good. What else do we see? We see also that He showed love and goodwill in blessing Adam and Eve. And so likewise, as we already mentioned, we are called to show blessing to other people. Are your relationships life-giving? Are you seeking to bless other people? Are you seeking to take from other people? Because God did not create so that he could take. He created so that he could bless. God doesn't need anything. And yet he created out of overflow that we might be joined into this dance of love, right? Beautiful. Beautiful. So there's lots of lots of implications when we understand that we are called to reflect the image of God. And those were just a few, and there's many more that we could talk about. But in all of this, we understand that God made us so that as our souls are turned towards him, like a mirror turned towards the sun, his glory would be reflected into us and shine forth in the world and bring flourishing and bring life. And so when we talk about being made in the image of God, it's not just a human attribute, it's a calling, right? It's a mission that we're given. To go to the world and live for the world. It's not us against the world, it's us for the world. God created us and he said, this is good, now go and subdue it. You've been stamped with my image, now go stamp my image on everything else. So that all the world will be covered in a coat of my glory. But are we doing that, or are we just running into the hole and hiding and saying like, oh, the world's bad, or are we just giving into it and saying, I'll just be a part of it? And so you become a part of the culture of death, or you try to keep yourself in this little bubble, and you don't spread the life that you were called to live. But rather, God says, I've planted my image on you, now go and reflect it. Bring flourishing, bring life. And so, I just want to kind of get a little more practical because what does it mean to glorify God? We've given some examples, right? And it's clear that the Bible is very clear that this is our purpose. In Isaiah 43, verses six and seven, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he says, thus says the Lord, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. God made us. Why? So that we would glorify him. And when he did that, he wanted us to incorporate that into every aspect of our life. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? He says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Everything. From the smallest things like eating and drinking to preaching a sermon, bring glory to God's name. So what does that mean? Well, in a sense, to glorify God is to magnify God. So there's a pastor by the name of John Piper, and he uses this illustration of a telescope. So a telescope, what it does is it looks out into the galaxy, and it takes something like the Milky Way, which is so vast and so grand and so far away from us, and it brings it so that you can see it, right? Likewise, you and I are called to magnify the name of God. God's this great, grand reality. Who can ever depict God? And yet, God is saying, let your life be a telescope so that when people look at you, it's as if they're looking at the Milky Way. When they look at you, they're seeing a lens to God's glory. Isn't that amazing that you get to be a lens to the glory of God? And so we were created to live in such a way so that when people look at our lives, what they see is they see the greatness, they see the grandness, they see the beauty of God, and they they worship him. Right? Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That people would look at your life and see God. That's what it means to image forth. So, what then is our purpose? What is the chief end of man? right? The Westminster Catechism, the answer of the churches throughout the age is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what you were made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But when you think about this, right, you think about like all this talk of praising, this talk of glorifying, it sounds either very strange or it sounds narcissistic, right? As if God is saying like, glorify me, because if you don't, I'll be very sad, right? As if God needs us, like my people must glorify me, you must, but that's not the idea, right? So what, is, what are we talking about when we understand making God glorious, when we are when thinking about bringing glory to God's name? Well, C.S. Lewis, he wrote in, in a book, he wrote this wonderful chapter called A Word About Praising. And in that chapter right because c.s lewis had this problem he said as i was reading the psalms i noticed all these these instances where the psalmist is saying praise the lord let everything that is breath give glory to his name and he just felt like isn't it a little like weird that god's like come on everybody glorify me you know praise like if anybody did that we think they're we think they're full of themselves or they're a lunatic right but why can god do that what is what is what's going on there well what c.s lewis points out is that when we think about praising, and we think about giving glory, oftentimes what we're thinking about is we're thinking about compliment, we're thinking about approval, we're thinking about giving honor, right? And that's what we think about, right? When somebody says, give me glory, we're thinking they're saying compliment me, which is strange, right? No one, no one should do that, so why would God do that, right? But what he began, began to realize was that really, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows with praise, and he goes to point out that the world is full of this, right? So you have people who are in love. What are they doing? They're singing the praises of the person that they love, right? You have person, people who, readers, right? And they're praising their favorite author. You have walkers who are praising the countryside, he says. You have players who are praising their favorite game right? Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even some politicians or scholars. That's what C.S. Lewis says, right? The world is filled with praise. Because when you enjoy something, what do you do? You praise it. And so what C.S. Lewis is, is making the point is that praise is almost the inner health of the soul made audible, the person who doesn't praise is a person who's a crank, right? It's the person who's, who's just gloomy and gl- grumpy all the time, right? They're Eeyore. Oh, it's going to rain, right? They're not praising. They're just walking around miserable because they don't enjoy anything, right? And we would say something's wrong with that person, right? No one looks at Eeyore and says, yeah, they've really lived in life, right? No, because to praise is a part of our human human nature. And so just as... Humans spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they also spontaneously urge us to join them in whatever they're praising, right? How many of you ever heard somebody talk about maybe their wife, isn't she lovely, right? Or, or somebody who eats this food eats, a, eats some food and they're like, this, isn't this the best food you've ever had, right? You go to the movie, wasn't that the best movie ever? What are they doing? They're inviting you to praise with them because that's what we naturally do when we praise things we invite people into, it's a natural overflow. And so what the psalmist is saying, C.S. Lewis says, is that in telling everybody to praise God, we're doing what all men do when they speak about the things they care about. And here's the point. The point is this, is that all of us praise something because all of us value something. What you value, that will you praise. But the more valuable the thing is, the greater the praise will be. And God is of supreme value. There is nothing greater than God. And so therefore, to praise him is to enter into the fullest, most perfect delight and satisfaction. So when you think about the Old Testament and, God is, and God's telling, he's demanding the people to praise him, it's not because he needs it. It's so that when they praise, it's, it's a way of him giving himself to his people, right? When God gave his people sacrifices, it wasn't because he needed the, the blood of goats. No, he's God. It was so that in that he could meet with the people. It's so that he can communicate himself to them. And so when God is calling us to praise him, when God is calling us to glorify him, C.S. Lewis concludes and he says, "To fully, fully to enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. That's what it means to glorify God. You glorify God by enjoying God. And until you learn to enjoy God, you will not glorify God. But the thing is, the point is is that you all value something. The question is, what are you valuing? Because what you value, you worship. And the Bible says that when you value God and you worship God, he is glorified and you are satisfied. And you will not be satisfied in any other thing. So what then is our purpose? Human beings were made for relationship with God to be satisfied in him alone and from that place of satisfaction to reflect with radiance his glory to the world through our work and our relationships with other people. That is what you were made to do. That's what you were made to do. But for a lot of us, we've bought the lie. And as we move forward here, I promise the next two points are not nearly as long as the first. As we move forward here, we're going to look at our problem. Because what went wrong? Because clearly, most of us, when we hear this, maybe we understand it conceptually, but we're we're like, I don't know, I, I don't experience that, I don't live that. What went wrong? Well, Genesis 3, only two chapters later, the serpent comes in, and what happens is, is he convinces Adam and Eve that their image is more beautiful than God's image. That's the lie. The lie of Satan, the lie of of our enemy, is that you don't need to reflect God's glory. You can produce your own glory. See, God just wants you to reflect his glory, but who needs it? You're beautiful on yourself. Look at you. You don't need God. And what happened in the garden is that Adam and Eve were convinced that they could be beautiful without God, apart from God. But the problem is, is it, it won't work. Why? Because the fact that we are made in the image of God means that we are dependent creatures. Think about it. If you have a mirror, a mirror cannot generate its own light. A mirror needs some source to give it light for it to reflect. If there's no light, there's no reflection. And likewise, for us as human beings, we were made in the image, we were made to reflect. And so if we're not going to reflect God, we're going to have to reflect something. And so the story of the garden is that Adam and Eve turned from God and they said, all right, well, we're gonna, we can be satisfied with our own beauty, but what they realized was that it wasn't enough. They were going to need something to give their life meaning. See, the word glory, it literally means weightiness, meaning, beauty. And if Adam and Eve weren't going to receive their glory from God, they were going to have to look to something else. And so some people, maybe you've heard somebody say, well, I don't really care what people think about me. Lies. Liar. Nobody doesn't care what people think about them, right? It's it's the very reason, right? As As one songwriter said, he said, I think it's true that we all live and die through everyone else's eyes. I think it's true that we all live and die through everyone else's eyes. It's true. It's why when you're with your friends, you try to be funny. Why? Because you want them to like you. Right? It's why when you put a picture on Instagram, you text your friends and you say, "Hey, I posted a picture. Go like it." Why? Because you want the number to go up. Right? It's the same reason why you check Instagram and when the number doesn't reach a certain point, you delete the picture. Why? Because you need to be no, you need you need to know that you have meaning. Nobody doesn't care what people think. And if you don't care at all what people think, you know what we call that? A sociopath. Right? Not now. Sociopaths are people, psychopath. Thank you, Alex. I think both of them, but regardless, they're pathological, right? That's the point. So the point is, is that all of us, we are unable to generate our own glory. We can't generate our own beauty, and so we have to face the mirror of our souls towards something. And God said, I created you so that the mirror of your soul would reflect me, you'd be satisfied in me, and you'd bring life. But Adam and Eve said, forget that, we could be beautiful on our own, but they couldn't. And so what they did is they looked to other things. And that's what the Apostle Paul says when in Romans 1, he talks about this is the plight of humanity. This This is our grave mistake, our deadly sin, the error that we've made. He says, because although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made into corruptible man. Paul says human beings had been given the glory of God. Right? As we read in... in, in um, Psalm 8, what does it say? Psalm 8, it says, for you have made them a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. But Adam and Eve said, I don't want your crown. I'm going to make my own. But they weren't able to make their own. They had to find somebody else to make it for them. And so the mistake that they did is they took the glory of God and they exchanged it for created things. And they said, I'm going to make an idol and I'll look to that to give my life me. I'll look to that thing that I can reflect it. And the result of this is instead of spreading life, they spread death. Chapter chapter four, right? Adam and Eve fall, chapter four, what happens? Cain and Abel, murder. Right away. And instead of bringing life, they bring death, literally. But for us, when you when you start to, when you turn the mirror of your soul towards created things instead of the creator, things you bring life, you bring death instead of life. Maybe not physical death but a great example of this is you see it in relationships with other people, right? So if you, if you reflect God what happens is, is as you are satisfied by God, you receive all your glory from Him, then you're able to serve and love other people. But if the mirror of your soul is not, towards, is not turned towards God but it's turned to other people then you need to look to them and they have to give meaning to your life. And so what happens? You put expectations on them, and your expectations crush them. Because nobody can play God for you. Nobody can give you the meaning and purpose that you're looking for in God because they are a created thing like you. And so what happens? What happens is you're in a relationship, and when you fail that person, what happens? You feel in t- immense guilt because you're starting to lose the glory. You fail them and and then you have fear because you're afraid that they're going to leave you because now you failed them. Right? And then when somebody comes and they threaten that relationship, right? Or perhaps they fail you, you become angry because they're not living up to your expectations because you need them to give your life meaning. And so what happened? You've become a slave to guilt, to fear, and to anger. And you're not spreading life. You're a slave to death. And so it, instead of experiencing satisfaction and joy, you're crushing people with your expectations and you're being crushed in the process. Because no human being can, can hold up under those expectations. And so this can happen with anything, right? You can look to your academic record, it can be love, it can be success, material comfort, even animals, right? People do this with animals, right? If status, even morality. You can tell yourself, I'm gonna be such a good person. And when you fail, you're filled with guilt because you don't understand grace. When you see somebody who criticizes you, you become angry because you feel like, no, I'm good. And you're always afraid because what if people find out I'm not who I really am? And so you're a slave, you're not free. You're not living out and fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. See, so you have to understand that when God created Adam and Eve, when he established the garden, he was bringing forth what the Bible calls shalom. It's this very holistic and wonderful understanding, under a view of creation. There's a, a theologian by the name of Cornelius Platinga, and he defined, defines shalom like this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. When God created Adam and Eve, that is what he had made them for. He made them to live in perfect relationship with him, to reflect his glory and experience delight But what happens is, the fall happens. And what happens is, is shalom is lost, sin enters the world, and humanity turns in on itself and starts to seek its glory from things that are not glorious. Things that do not possess weight, things that do not possess meaning. And so Platinga, he goes on and he describes the nature of this sin. He says, God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively, because it violates shalom. Sin interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Sin offends God not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly as irreverence or blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. What sin is, it's taking what God has made and instead of using it to reflect His name and build His kingdom, we start to build our own little kingdoms. And we say, I'm going to make my name great, right? Is that not what happened with the Tower of Babel? The people come together and they say, let us make a name for ourselves." But they can't just make a name for themselves. They need a tower, right? Because they need something to say, this, this will give me glory. This will represent my name. And God says, enough of your tower. Crushes the tower and he says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And so you see this battle between the world and between God where man is saying, I will be great. I will have glory. I will have meaning. And so it looks to the created order. It looks to idols. And it looks to things to say, give me meaning. And God says, you fools. I wanted to make your name great. You were made to reflect me. You were made to know me. But instead, we've exchanged it. And so the question is, can shalom be regained? Can it be regained can paradise lost be regained can the image of god be restored in the humanity who has exchanged it for the glory of idols and the wonderful answer of the scripture is yes it's yes and that brings us to our final point our restoration See, if all that we had in the Bible was Genesis 1 through 3, then we would know that humans have value, we would know that they have dignity, we would know that they were made for the purpose of reflecting God and being satisfied by God, but we would have no way of getting back to the image that we've fallen so far from. But the good news is that the Bible gives us the whole story. Creation to consummation. And the part of the story that is so pivotal for our understanding is when you come to the New Testament and we're introduced to the character of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. See, Jesus wasn't just made in the image of God. He was the image of God. And so Jesus Christ, he comes to the world, The image of God comes to our dwelling. He takes the form of a man, right? The Bible says that refers to Jesus as the second Adam. What does that mean? What that means is that Jesus Christ came to do what Adam failed to do. Jesus Christ came to live the life that Adam was supposed to live. See, Adam failed. He didn't reflect God's glory. But Jesus Christ said, I am the image of God, and I will do what you have failed to do. And so as you read the Gospels, what do you see? You see God in Jesus Christ, he's going around and he's healing people, right? The sick are made whole. The blind are made to see. The deaf are made to hear. The lame are made to walk. Those who've been, who have been uh, tortured by de- demons are set free. You see him walking amongst creation, right? And he feeds 5,000 He brings multiplication of natural resources. You see him on the sea and the storms are raging. And what does he do? He subdues them. What did did God tell Adam to do? Subdue creation. And what does Jesus do? He subdues creation. And what is he doing? Jesus is bringing shalom. And as he walks on earth, you're seeing peace flourishing, restoration. The world that is broken is being made whole. Why? Because Jesus Christ is doing what Adam was supposed to do. He's reflecting the glory of God as a mirror reflects the sun, and he's satisfied in his Father. Jesus is going around, and he's always talking about, I only do what the Father told me to do. He's always going off, and he's praying, right? Why? Because he understands that he was made for relationship, and he was made to reflect. Because that's what humans were created to do. And so as the second Adam, he's doing what we are supposed to do. He's restoring the shalom that has been lost. Eden is being open to us, but something happens. What happens? He's living the life that we should live, and instead of being welcomed into the Father's delight, he's trampled on. He's rejected, and he's despised by men. He's crucified. Why? you and for me for you and for me Jesus Christ he goes to the cross and he's crucified so that the broken image of God in us can be remade forgiven and restored and so when you look and you see that something begins to happen because as as humans we fail to fulfill our purpose We've worshiped things that are not God. And there's consequences to that. There are consequences to that, real consequences. And so Jesus comes and not only does he live the life we're supposed to live, but he dies the death we should have died. Because God can't just restore shalom until justice has been served. And instead of justice coming upon us, Jesus says, in your place condemned I stood. I, the image of God, trampled upon because you went around and you've trampled on my image. And so when you look at the death and the resurrection of Christ, at the center of it is restoration. At the center of the death and resurrection of Christ is the promise and the power to restore the image of God that we have allowed to become broken, twisted, and marred in us. That's what the cross and the resurrection is about. It's about restoration. And as you begin to understand that, As you start to realize, I have been looking for things to give me meaning and glory and beauty that never could. And instead you look at the cross and you see, Jesus Christ did that for me, something happens. The mirror of your soul is turned about face and it returns to its proper position. And it's able to once more reflect the glory of God. And the image that's been marred and broken can be restored. And so now as we live, our souls are transfixed on Christ and we're being transformed and we're able to go once more into the world and bring flourishing and bring the goodness of God. That's why Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians three eighteen he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. I love John Piper. He says that, beholding is becoming and as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ you are becoming the image of God once more the mirror is restored and so now you can reflect the glory of God and so Jesus Christ he comes he restores the broken image so that the mirror of our souls may be angled to him and reflect once more the true image of the God of God that he intended for us in the garden And in so doing, we become truly human. Do you understand that? You see, sin, what sin does is it dehumanizes you. It strips you of what it means to be human. Do you remember that story where Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man doesn't even have a name. He's called the rich man. Why? Because he turned the mirror of his, he spent his whole life pointing the mirror of his soul on riches. And as a result, he was stripped of everything of his humanity, and he just became the rich man. But Jesus Christ came so that you could be a genuine human being. To follow God, to reflect God, is to be human. It's what you were made for. So what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we repent. Because, Lord, we have not lived in the way that you have created us to live. Lord, so easily we turn our souls towards things that promise to give us glory, but instead leave us enslaved and dehumanized. But, God, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the image of God, who came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, who was trampled upon in death, but in his resurrection brought restoration, perfect, beautiful restoration, that the image of God in us might be healed. So Lord, I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters here tonight. God, I pray that they would catch a glimpse of that vision, that they would turn their souls to you. that we would learn to reflect you in our schools, in our families, in our jobs, in our relationships, that all the world would look at our lives and know that there is a God in heaven, that they would see our good works and glorify your name, that they too may be satisfied in you. God, teach us to glorify you by enjoying you. Show us what that means, we pray. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen.